This episode was recorded on the land of the Ngunnawal people. Welcome to Teach Insights from Catalyst, the podcast that explores the science of learning and its practical implementation in the classrooms of Catholic Education, Canberra Goulburn. I'm your host, Luke Mooney, and in each episode, we'll hear from teachers and leaders who are leading the way in implementing evidence-based teaching practice. Today, I speak with Peter Collins, Curriculum Coordinator and Classroom Teacher at St. Thomas Aquinas Primary School, West Belconnen. In this episode, Pete and I delve into his school's Catalyst journey with a particular focus on maths and reading. Pete shares his journey from both the school leader's viewpoint and how this looks in the classroom. We chat about EDI lessons, the science of reading, vocabulary, the knowledge-rich curriculum, and also touch on writing. We covered a lot of ground in this conversation, so let's get started. Hi Pete, thanks for joining us today on Teach Insights. Hi Luke, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's really good to have you. So Pete, I just wanted to start our conversation today about when your school started the Catalyst journey and how you might have started. Okay, it's a big question, Luke. Look, our journey started in 2020 with the introduction of Initialit. Um, when we did the Initialit rollout in K12, we discovered that it was a fantastic way of addressing the problems we had with students reading. In the past, we had students who weren't reaching benchmark in kindergarten for reading. Once initial it rolled out, we had about 95% of kids in kindergarten reaching benchmark, which showed us instantly that that the direct instruction approach was good for our school. So, um, you know, when Catalyst then rolled out, we had teachers who had seen part of the results of initially and, and the type of learning that our kids could demonstrate. And then um, we were really enthusiastic to take up the Catalyst project and and work with that and delve more into EDI. 95% reaching benchmarks, awesome. Yeah, oh, look, our, our teachers were, I think, crying out for something that would work. And and when we handed the teachers that program, or I shouldn't say we, I wasn't at the school at that stage, but when the teachers were handed the program and they were able to just roll it out and and follow the procedures, the kids started learning more effectively. So seeing that sort of success in, in, in an area like that for English in the, with infants, did you focus on that? to continue with, or did you branch out into another area of the curriculum? Well, when the Catalyst project rolled out, we had already started that work with English using Initialit, so we thought that ball will keep rolling and we will investigate other ways to make that happen most effectively. Math seemed like it was a very natural and easy starting point for us because it, stand alone, it stands alone. Um, and was this back in 2020? Yeah. Oh, this was at the start of 2021. So after talking with our Catalyst coaches, our external providers from Coglearn, uh, we all agreed that maths would be a very simple starting point for us. Uh, and then that would give us the chance to look at all of the high impact teaching practices that go into the teaching of maths and learn them 
learn how to use them, learn how a daily review works, learn how an EDI lesson works before we then tried to take it on in other areas. Maths was just a sensible, strategic start for us. So you mentioned EDI just then and daily review, and you implemented this into maths. What were those changes that you made to make it a, uh, an explicit direct instruction lesson? Oh, that's an interesting question. <laughs> well, when we started with the math, the, I guess the big thing we discovered was that there are a lot of teachers who aren't confident in teaching maths. Uh, that's all there is to it. And and people who are confident in teaching maths normally have learned their skills in a particular way, probably how they learnt them in primary schools, and they're the ways that they try to impart the knowledge in their classrooms. And it's not always as effective as it could be. Plus, people tended to pick and choose a little bit in maths. This concept's a little bit hard. I won't teach that as much as I'll teach perimeter and area because that's an easy type of thing to teach. So we wanted to address gaps in kids' knowledge as well. So, And we wanted a whole approach. So we wanted to actually be able to teach maths most effectively. Uh, so we started with the daily review because the daily review gave us a chance to learn about interleaving and gave us a chance to then revise lots of the parts that we felt the kids weren't confident with or haven't hadn't developed that knowledge with. So daily review helped us do that. It helped us practice our our protocols and our engagement norms. So we wanted it was really important for us to get that student engagement. And we also wanted to make sure that we had really firm expectations, really firm protocols in place for the kids. We do have a few behavioural issues at the school. Uh, we wanted to limit those behavioural issues in class time with those attentional control techniques that, that you would learn when you're first you know, rolling out a daily review. So, Pete, can you break open the structure of an EDI lesson in maths. You were telling me previously that you, when you first began in Catalyst that you were teaching four days a week in your um, coordinator role. Yep. So you had a good opportunity to get stuck into what this might look like on the ground. Yeah. Well, I guess we looked at the structure of the EDI as crucial because the EDI structure, it's what allows you to employ all of those strategic practices, all of those HITP practices to more effectively convey knowledge to the kids. Um, so what does it look like? Well, I guess my thing is if you ask a group of teachers to all make a presentation about the same subject, they're all going to go away and every single presentation is going to look different. Uh, that's that's a natural thing when people put their own flair on things. So that's why structure was important to us. Uh, we appreciated things might look a little bit different, but we wanted a set structure about those EDI lessons Great. so we could use everything most effectively. So generally it'll start off with a little bit of vocab. Um, in maths? In maths because, you know, it, we will be able to touch any relevant vocab that the kids already know but we get to introduce any new vocab that they might see in, in the related topic. Um, 
then we would go in for a little bit of the learning intention. So we will go through the learning intention. We'll show the kids the success criteria. Then we'd do a pair share or a similar activity. So the partners actually have to be able to articulate what the lesson is about to their partner. And then we could ask them to say, what did your partner tell you? So we have an instant check for understanding. So they know what they're learning and they can articulate what it's about. And this happened every lesson? Every lesson. Okay. Still does. It's, I, I think that clarification at the start of a lesson with a quick partner share about the learning intention, I think it's a marvellous way just to make sure everybody is accountable and understands what's going on in the lesson. Then what happens next? So then we would look at uh, activating the kids' prior knowledge. So as we all know, we'll, we've learned over the last few years that knowledge sticks to knowledge. Um so it's important to activate that prior knowledge so that new knowledge actually has something to stick to. Makes perfect sense when you think about it. And would that be part of a previous lesson, that uh, prior knowledge or anything connected to that concept at that time? Oh, yeah. No, we would develop, we would build on what has been taught in previous lessons. I, I know when we used to teach, we might do, you know, two weeks or a week on a particular subject or a particular area of maths and then move on. Um, I know our new scope and sequence is a little bit different, but yeah, certainly we'd still try to scaffold. I mean, that's the whole idea with, you know, EDI lessons that it helps us carefully scaffold and build on what has gone before. So, And then would it follow something of the structure of Anita Archer's I do, we do, you do? Oh, that's certainly, there is an absolute element of that in all of our EDI lessons, because after we have, um, after we've activated that prior knowledge, we'll do a little bit of that concept development. And that concept development absolutely requires the teacher to have sound knowledge of exactly what they are conveying to the kids. I found that particularly difficult at the start, actually. Why is that? Because it was one of those things where we try to teach or we, we give kids the knowledge. We kind of try to guide them through the understandings and we can show them worked examples on the board but we often try to teach with examples without first articulating really succinctly exactly what that learning should be and it's hard to plan a lesson or it, it forces the teacher to really zone in and think what exactly do I need my children to get from this lesson and I think in the past we would plan a lesson and we think, oh, that's great. But we don't always consider exactly what we need those kids to learn. How did you cope with um, the different levels of ability in your classroom? The differentiating the lessons itself, we, we struggle a little bit with that at first, I guess. Um, just because while we're getting our own processes, our own protocols, while we're altering our own teaching style, it's... It's hard to wrap your head around everything. I mean, we talk about cognitive overload, and I think the kids end up with cognitive overload sometimes. And I think certainly us as teachers ended up with a little bit of cognitive overload as well. So we were looking at, oh, how do we differentiate these lessons? Um, the answers were actually pretty simple when we thought about them. If they were doing a daily review, we might have a traffic light system where the green one, everybody had to answer, or the, you know, the orange one was most people and the red one was like a challenge question or something like that. And that works. That works pretty well. It's a quick way to, to 
differentiate. Uh, the EDI lessons is is a little bit more challenging because once we've gone through that concept development and we're into that, we're into those worked examples with the I do, we do, you do type of focus, it was much harder to differentiate when you are, excuse me, using a worked example because it is the worked example. We're showing them the process. Um, so we would have to go through, uh, let's say we were doing three-digit by two-digit multiplication as an example, and we would do that worked example, but we would know, <coughs> excuse me, we would know that there are kids in the class that wouldn't be able to cope with that concept. So we would have to be able to work our way to the independent practice, but then do more worked examples, say with a small group, where we might be focusing on one by two digit multiplication to bring everybody up to speed. But then that leaves the problem that you have your highly efficient mathematical thinkers that complete tasks really early. So we also needed to be able to balance that with some challenge for those kids as well. And do you do this with the whiteboards in front of you as well, the student whiteboards? Uh, yep, all all work is done with the student whiteboards in front of them. These days we set up at the start of our maths EDI lessons, the kids will get their workbook, their pencil, their whiteboard and their marker. It's just part of our organisation before we start a maths lesson. So they know that their whiteboards are there. They know that they can chin it. They know that they can you know, hover, show their work, all of those things. Um, we can quickly do those check for understanding things with the whiteboard, but then their independent practice goes into their books. So to clarify what year level, uh, for our listeners, it was uh, year five or year six? Uh, teach year five, yes. Year five. And yep. do, they, do they come, do they have floor space that they work on or do they sit at their desks? Uh, we keep our kids at their desks. One of the things that we also look at with the whiteboards is the ergonomics. We want we want kids first to have nice posture at their desks. We want their focus. We find that if they're sitting on the floor, we can wriggle, we can get uncomfortable, we can lose focus. So we keep them in a space where they are focused, where their hands are in the right spot, where they should be. It's almost like practicing your handwriting skills, I guess, while you're working on your whiteboard. So we don't want to put them in a place where... where one, they might be subject to extraneous load through whether it be through discomfort uh, or, or you know, their hands, wrists getting sore or whatever they are for whatever it might be from where they're sitting. So, desks. With, um, with these EDI lessons, um, they're much more structured than the way you might have taught before. Um, what about the use of manipulatives um, in your in those lessons, did you find that you were still using them um, at various times? Um, do you still see that as important? There are occasions where manipulatives will still be in use. Um, I think, for instance, when we are telling time, and I know that there might be a group of kids in my class that aren't very good at telling time on an analog clock, so I might have a small analog clock stuck to their desk just for their reference during that lesson. Uh, it's the same as supporting anybody with you know individual so if, needs. If you needed to, the MAB would come out 
I oh, in year five and six, um, MAB has come out. I have seen it used in the past, but generally, I would find that in my classroom or on their desks, having MI, MAB blocks may cause a distraction for the kids, particularly if we're focusing on. I mean, if we're looking at addition or subtraction or something like that, then. You would think by year five they have adequate mental strategies to be able to solve it. I know some occasions they can't, but that might be a case of whether we have some small magnetic MABs that might stick to their whiteboards that they can use easily. But the traditional old bulk type of manipulatives, um, yeah, we don't use so much anymore. Caused a lot of distraction, I'm hearing. They they can cause distraction. Oh, well, I could speak for myself. When I was a child, if I had MAB blocks on my desk, I would be building a tower and not practicing maths. And I, I think that still continues today. I mean, there will be always be children that do the right thing, but there'll always be children who whose attention wanders. And you know what? They're the kids that we most need involved in the lessons. We're travelling along the EDI lesson route in maths and we're in the lesson, uh, you're teaching what needs to be taught explicitly and the students are having independent practice as well. Um, And you're giving feedback going around the classroom as they have their independent practice. As the the lesson progresses, um, it's coming to an end. How might this lesson end? That's an interesting question as well, Luke. Because we do tend to um, we do we do tend to just transition and go right books away. That's it. Uh, I think one of the big things for us is before the end of a lesson, we'll convey the relevance of what we're doing to the kids. Um, there's always a slot in our EDI lessons to explain to kids why they're learning that particular skill, and a nice little closure is to revisit to revisit our success criteria from the start so kids can identify identify whether they have succeeded in the task and being able to also convey to another student, their partner perhaps, why the skill is actually relevant to them. So I heard you mention HITP, High Impact Teaching Practices, before that we're going to interleave through the EDI lessons. Can you just give us an outline about um, what that might be for our listeners? When we look at the high-impact teaching practices, I guess one of the most important things is lesson structures. That always appears as a high-impact teaching practice. Uh, And a specific structure to an EDI lesson, it builds routine, it supports engagement, uh, and it it helps us to bed in our protocols and expectations for the kids more effectively. And then, obviously, it scaffolds learning. So I guess when we talk high-impact teaching practices... That structuring lessons is one of the crucial ones. Could you name one of these high-impact teaching practices that's had the most impact for you as a teacher? Ooh, okay, yes. Just thinking, look, there's a couple of things that spring to my mind instantly. The first thing is your worked examples. Now, I I think if you were to delve into high-impact teaching practices, I think the good old-fashioned worked example is one of the most impactful things that you can do. And you can do that through the I do, we do, you do phase. Uh, and it it just, I, I find it 
a marvel. I don't know how you would teach maths without worked examples. Um, and of course, the other most significant high impact teaching practice would be the uh, multiple exposures. Because, uh, I mean, without those multiple exposures, it's not going to stick in, no information is going to stick in our memories unless we get that chance to practice. Has there been any particular change in your actions or pedagogy within when you're standing in front of the class that's um, had a great impact on maybe student engagement or the way that you might have um, run a lesson in the past? It's a very different structure these days. It's it's very much teacher-led, but with a high level of that student input. Um, and everything has changed, I guess. As, as, an old, as an old teacher, I had to unlearn my old style of teaching and take on this new, very structured type of teaching that, that I found challenging because as a young man, I, I used to have the philosophy that teaching was one quarter preparation and three quarters theatrics. And if I, if I could employ those theatrics to get kids engaged, if I could create memorable learning experiences, then they would remember what we covered in class. And, and to a degree it worked. They would go home. They would be able to talk to their parents about what they remembered. Could they remember the lesson content? No. And that, and that was, that was one of the biggest things that I learned that it doesn't matter how engaging I am as a presenter, the content has to be engaging for the kids as well. So it's an absolute focus on content and meaningfully conveying that content to the kids. Are you a big user of Tapple? I am. It has to be. It has to be employed. Well, let's face it. If we if we are doing structured you know, EDI lessons, then that Tapple focus has to come in. There always has to be that that teaching first. There always has to be that asking a question then to check that they've understood. Because there's no point in teaching unless you know that the kids understand what you're doing. Um, there's like there has to be lots of times to pause and think there has to be times for partner sharing there there has to be time particularly for the teacher to listen to the responses because I mean what brings me to another great um, high impact teaching practice which is the questioning you teachers have to be able to ask pointed and meaningful questions to get a sense of student understanding uh, and then you know that leads into being able to provide feedback you know, if you can ask that pointed, meaningful question, then you can offer that feedback immediately to that child as well. So you started with maths in your school, and then there's so much happening with what we're learning here about EDI and then, or the HITP. Did you see that sort of move into other areas of the curriculum? So as soon as we started creating uh, EDI lessons in maths, people saw the value of it across the curriculum. Um, so starting with initial ed, people saw the impact it had. Then moving on to our maths focus in Catal Catalyst, people saw the impact it had. Uh, and then people got curious, can I create an EDI lesson for English? Can I create an EDI lesson for science or digital technologies? Uh, and people started to experiment with it then. They got 
very, very motivated. We were lucky that we had a staff that was so enthusiastic and energized with this whole process. So it just started to naturally spill over into other areas of school. And of course, we had our wave one teachers, so our first lot of seven teachers to go through. And then we had our wave two teachers that were coming through next year. But our staff saw what was happening and were so enthused. It was hard to separate wave one and wave two teachers because everybody wanted to know what was going on. And when you say wave one and wave two, the, not all staff were involved in the um, the learning of HITP at that point? Or was it just a slow sort of release? It was as, it was, as Catalyst was, was to be, a, a gradual process as we upskilled. Yeah, we had our wave one teachers. So our first seven teachers of our school went through and then there was meant to be another seven teachers next year and then another seven the year after. So that was kind of our structure. So over three years, we would roll the whole staff through. That was a great idea in theory. We didn't anticipate how much our staff would want to be involved and and their belief in what we were doing. We must be at a point now where things are rolling really, um, rolling really fast at the school or we're at a point now that um, the teachers have a good handle on HITP. How do we, do we get to a point where um, we say we're, we, we stop doing this and or how do we maintain this momentum? That is one thing we are discovering at the moment, Luke, that there are staff that are now beginning to ask the question, where to next? I have a great structure in my classroom. I, I've employed all of these protocols to maintain that attentional control. You know, my practice is really tight. I have wonderful engagement norms to, to keep children busy and active during my lessons. I feel like I have got the hang of this stuff. What do I do now? And, and that's where we are kind of across our school at the moment, where, where people are, are wondering what is going to be our next step. So I know you told me before, before we had this conversation now, um, that you actually getting into the classroom yourself and observing practice, you're setting the conditions for teachers to thrive. What's that, what's that looking like right now for you? Okay, so I guess... Getting into classrooms and and doing some observations and being able to provide some feedback for teachers is really important for us to... I know we've had a previous conversation about avoiding the plateau. I, I feel that teachers, we upskill quite rapidly when we start our careers and then we find routines and structures that work for us and then we tend to grow a little bit complacent complacent, sorry, and then we plateau a little bit and we don't grow as much as we should. So our concern was how can we avoid the plateau at our school where teachers just employ things as a matter of routine in their classroom, they go through the motions and, and that's it. We want people to be as sharp as they can be and be the best teachers they can be through that process of of constant improvement and for us that was being able to get out and do a little bit of coaching and being able to provide meaningful feedback to staff. 
So you mentioned before to, in, a, in a, another previous conversation as well that um, you had a, an example you used about surgery, a surgeon and coaching. That was a yep. really good that was That was a fantastic article that came from Lorraine Hammond. So last year, right here at St. Thomas the Apostle, I had the privilege of being able to, I would say, hone, refine, learn, <laughs> might be a better, learn how to be better at the coaching side of things. And I got to work with Lorraine here and I got to see how she did things. And part of part of uh, preparation for those HITP intensive was that Lorraine shared an article with us about, uh, about a surgeon. So it was about coaching. And a particular surgeon, he was very good at his job. He had made many improvements. He was very successful, but he got to a point in his career where he just wasn't getting any better. He felt like he had plateaued. So he went to one of his old uni lecturer people, one of the people who taught him in the hospital, a, a very good surgeon, and asked him to come and do some observations. And when he did some observations, he just was able to identify little things that people had never picked on, never never picked up before. And then they had a conversation after, obviously, their first coaching session, and he just shared some of the observations that he had. And it was an absolute epiphany to the, to the learner, to the surgeon who had asked him to do a little bit of coaching and mentoring, just little things that he hadn't noticed before. Uh, and, I, and I think that's what we're trying to do, just those little one percenters or identifying those little things that will give you a maximum return for the effort that you put in. And that's where we're at. That's where we are at at the moment. We, we look for those little things that will help teachers get a maximum return. So we offer feedback. There's lots of positives because we like to celebrate the good things and all of the skills and all of the knowledge that teachers have already embedded into their practice. Great to acknowledge. But then when we look at the future direction, what are those little bits that we can refine that will actually that will help teachers see a big return for their effort. That's really great. For our listeners, we might even pop a link to that article in our show notes as well. You've mentioned, we spent a lot of time breaking open the structure of the EDI lesson at your school. Have you tried any direct instruction programs? Oh, are we talking capital DI, the scripted programs, Luke? We are. (laughs) Yes, we have. We have tried a few. Um, Obviously, initially scripted program we love it uh it just works for our area in our school context it just works our kids are learning to read in the junior levels they're learning to comprehend (laughs) it is it's a marvelous thing so that's there to stay uh we have looked at spelling mastery as a scripted program i think that spelling mastery is a wonderful di program it's easy to deliver to the kids. There are lots of lots of repetition, lots and lots of repetition with the kids. So they are constantly practicing those skills that recall. Um, I think it's I think it's one of our great successes in the school. Yeah, I've, spelling I've used it as well, and um, I learned a lot from it as well myself as a teacher. <laughs> 
I was going to say, yes, a lot of the time our teachers learn a lot of those rules for spelling that they didn't necessarily know existed. Uh, so that has been great. Again, has to be taught with fidelity, has to be taught with energy. Um, we can't have those kids droning. We can't have those kids echoing. For us, the advice we've been given is spelling mastery should be a noisy time because you should be able to walk around the school. You should be able to hear those kids spelling, responding. So it should be a noisy time. Have you been using it long enough to see any change in your data and results? We picked it up last year. Uh, our PAT spelling has showed some growth, but we are looking forward to NAPLAN results this year and, and what our PAT data tells us later on in the year. We do, a, we do obviously a placement test before we start spelling mastery as well. And generally our kids move up. So it seems to be working. To some degree, it transfers to their writing, but this is also going to be our focus now to make sure that those kids aren't just falling back on what they think in their heads when they're writing, where they're transferring, you know, spelling to their writing that they're actually accessing those little knowledge pathways in their brain to actually get that right spelling down. And so that's our focus is to look at the spelling in their writing at the moment to get a picture of that. Sure. We have one more scripted program that we are trialling as well at the moment, Luke, and that is Connecting Maths Concepts. We started that in year two as a trial last year, just in year two, because there's a fair expense attached to setting up Connecting Maths Concepts for, for your school. It was very, very successful in year two. Our kids acquired a lot of knowledge. It's a little bit different to how we would traditionally teach because it is an American program, but our kids acquired a lot, a lot of knowledge and particularly number concepts, counting by numbers, adding, subtracting. Um, it was really quite impressive. So this year we decided to trial it in years one, two and three because we wanted it to roll into year three. Uh, to give those kids a chance to to keep going with the program to see if it works. Uh, and so far, it seems to be it seems to be really good. Was there any issues with the units between American units and Australian units of measurement? Yeah, because it is an American program, there is the measurement and there is the money that creates a little bit of a conundrum for us, but with the beautiful new CE resources that have been released, we can we can fall back on the elements of EDI oh, and, and, and the daily review with with money and measurement from from our CE resources. So that's been very handy. So you've started out with maths as a focus of your school. That didn't that that was one year, was it? Yes. And then oh, sorry, no, I'm wrong, Luke. We did two years consolidating maths. So our Wave One teachers did daily reviews and EDIs, and then in the second year, our Wave 2 teachers continued with the Maths Daily Review and EDIs. So are you still focusing on maths at the moment, or are you moving your focus This now? year, we moved our focus to English, because English is more complex to address than mathematics. So does that mean that you'd had to 
to sort of get a handle on what the science of reading actually meant now, um, because maths would have been less of a focus, and the science of reading um, has a few elements in it that we need to to understand. Yeah, look, as as we switch to English, um, I think the size of the task involved when looking in English is a little more intimidating because there are so many elements of English that we need to address. Um, what was one of the What was one of the biggest questions that you had that you wanted to address going forward? Yeah, this is what I was about to mention when we first started our English focus, um, I was asked, how will we explicitly teach reading in years three to six? And I was, I was stumped. I had, I had no idea. I'd just come from this maths and I could see how EDI and daily review applied to maths and it was, it all, it all made sense. And then when I was asked, how will we do this with reading? I, I was I was at an absolute loss. So then we... <laughs> you have the answers for us today? I, I wish I did, Luke. What I did was try to find ways to make it work. Um, one of the biggest things that we found was the knowledge-rich curriculum. Um, that gave us the means to explicitly teach reading and knowledge hand in hand. So we took, I don't know if everybody knows about the knowledge rich units, but basically they're an Australian version of the core knowledge units that were developed for use in the United States. And the knowledge rich stuff has been developed for use here in Australia. And we were able to pick up those units and roll with them. So the knowledge rich units have a series of lessons that go that go with, there might be student readers, there might be a student workbook, but there's a set of lessons that go with them that have reading and comprehension passages in there, but it's all about building knowledge and comprehension and unpacking vocab and being able to use all of those beautiful high impact teaching practices that that the kids um, benefit from. And the one thing that we discovered is as soon as we trialed a knowledge rich units, uh, sorry, as soon as we trialled a knowledge-rich unit, our kids went bananas for it. They just showed us a thirst for knowledge that we hadn't seen in them before. So what can you give us an example about uh, one of the units that, that you've done in the past that was very successful? Yep, well, the first unit we tried, <laughs> we actually tried this in Year 5. Uh, it was a Vikings unit. Um, we wanted to trial a unit. The Vikings unit was at a year three level. We needed to trial it, so we thought we will try a few lessons in year five uh, just to see how it goes. And whether or not the, it was seemed achievable to our kids, like the reading passages are quite complex still. There's still a lot of vocabulary to unpack. There's still a lot of knowledge to unpack, and there's still a lot of reading to be done. But our kids just... As soon as they started reading, it was different to what they had done before, and it opened up the world to them. We weren't just looking at we weren't just looking at our family or or our local community or maybe Canberra as a whole. Like all of a sudden, their horizons broadened to take in 
history of the world and and this global knowledge and it was it was unique for them and they could not get enough of it so and, and since then we have taught uh, units on say the Incas and and the Mayans you know we have year one that has done a, a unit on Mesopotamia and Side note, little little anecdote here. I was on bus duty one afternoon, and and I had a little boy come down, and a boy who does not connect to learning readily was sitting at the bus stop with a big flat piece of plasticine, and somebody stepped on it, and he started to cry, and I asked him why he was crying, and he said. I was writing my name in ancient Mesopotamian in class today, but I didn't get it finished. I was taking my work home so I could finish it tonight and somebody stepped on it. And I just thought it's amazing that a person who would not be connected to their learning had been so connected to learning about Mesopotamia and and that they wanted to take their work home and finish it and go off it and learn more. So so I've got a, a couple of questions to ask about this knowledge-rich curriculum. Um, wh- why did you start talking about this, to, to mention this? When How did this connect to reading right now? Oh, well, um, a lot of the knowledge-rich units, there's, there's a high volume of reading on behalf of the students, whether it be... Well, I mean, we, we chorally read some parts. We have parts where the teacher might read or we can select individuals to read. But there is the, they're structured in such a way that the knowledge is there, but the reading passages are quite complex as well. So there's parts on the slide where we would unpack vocabulary and then students can discuss the meaning of the vocabulary or they might discuss certain parts of the passage or, so there's always those interaction bits because, you know, when we structure an EDI lesson, we wouldn't go for more than two minutes without the kids doing something. So while we're reading these passages, there's little comprehension questions at the side where we might stop and ask the kids, maybe they, maybe they vote on an answer or maybe they discuss the answer with a partner or maybe they write an answer to a question on their whiteboard. So... It's a matter of, you know, if we want kids to learn how to read, then we read more. And um, the exposure to more knowledge and a, and a knowledge-rich curriculum builds their background knowledge, it which builds, we now know is integral in comprehension. Yep, as knowledge sticks to knowledge. And that's so we are trying to provide that broad knowledge base so when kids do pick up different texts that, that they have something to hang that knowledge on. You mentioned Vikings, uh, the Incas, Mesopotamia. Yep, we have. We've covered ancient Egypt. Uh, we've covered world lakes. We have. Oh, what else have we covered? There's too many to remember. These these units that you're talking about now, and this knowledge that you're talking about now, um, seems a little bit. Um, disconnected from the Australian curriculum, were you making links between for the Australian curriculum within this teaching? Yeah. Okay. So when when you drill down into the elaborations in the Australian curriculum, particularly with Haas, uh, there's a lot of Australian content 
mentioned in there. Uh, so the elaborations will always point you in the direction of Australian history or whatever. But when you look at the content descriptions, they are a lot broader. Um, so we chose to focus on the content descriptions and the elaborations are suggestions of what we could teach uh, or a recommendation of what we should teach, but it's not set in concrete. So we looked at the content descriptions. We made sure that we had that the units, the knowledge-rich units aligned with the content descriptions uh, and we used that as our bridge to trial the units. Great. You must have made some comparisons also with um, Australia as well and within within the knowledge-rich unit. Yeah, well, I mean, it's knowledge-rich is set up. Sorry, I'm just trying to think. It's, it's quite complex. It kind of spirals. So every year, say, there would be a unit on, say, a world religion. So depending on where you are, kindergarten, year one, two, three, four, five, six, it would spiral through. So you'd look at a different world religion each year. You might look at a, a different culture each year. So it kind of, it kind of all build up and relate to each other in the end. So that's really good. And there's always those opportunities to compare what you have in in the knowledge-rich units to what we have in Australia. And some of the, like when we're looking at, say, World Lakes, I mean, Lake Eyre is a significant World Lake. So there are things that link back to Australian content. Does that mean that you're doing some reading lessons in the morning that you can bring some of the science content into the morning? Because it's all about, we've got a crowded curriculum. Yes, we've we got do. to try and make time and be a little bit smart with our timetabling as well. How are you structuring the balance between the other curriculum areas and, and English? Well, I guess the marvelous thing for us is that when we shared the knowledge rich units with staff, and they experimented with, well, not experiment, they trialled them in their classrooms. Um, it was one of those situations where everybody got on board. They taught a lesson. The kids absolutely responded. They displayed that thirst for knowledge. And people were, were committed to having a go. And then when they looked at the structure of a knowledge-rich unit again the thought the brains started turning over and people thought well why can't i apply this to another subject area so then we had people producing knowledge and i was going to say knowledge rich style units because i mean these units are significantly researched and developed uh, but our staff looked at the structure and thought well i can have a go at that i need to do this little unit on the gospel writers in religion, for instance. So we'd have little knowledge-rich units produced on on, on the gospel writers. Uh, I'm doing a project at the moment on space junk, and I thought, well, what's the best way to convey this knowledge? I need to make it a knowledge-rich type of focus. So there is information, say, in my lesson about space junk, but then there's going to be vocabulary that might be unpacked during or prior to the lesson. Uh, there's a lot of chances for kids to respond and to discuss the content that's there. 
uh, to help them make meaning before they go off and then do some of their project work to go with it. So instead of just being, I'm just thinking in design technologies, instead of just giving them a project and them researching or investigating, we explicitly convey the knowledge they need to successfully do the next part of their project. And does some of this happen in the morning? Yeah, well, we don't have a defined literacy block. So it's it's our, our timetabling because we have to be, you know, creative with how RFF rosters and things work. We can't always guarantee you are going to have a two-hour literacy block in the morning, plus with integration. So with knowledge rich. So it might it might become part of religion. It might become part of HASS. It might become part of design technologies. But then that kind of feeds then into our English and what we're doing in English. And it gives people the chance to to do two things at once. We're, you know, teachers should be good at multitasking. So why not be able to, you know, explicitly teach your reading lesson while you're doing, touching your religion content? English is so multifaceted. We've got reading. And then I wanted to chat a bit about the vocab lessons that you are exploring. And I think in our previous chat that we've had before, that's something that you've had a focus on and people are excited about at your school. Yes. Well, we were fortunate that uh, when we when we wanted to take on reading and thinking about how do we explicitly teach reading, uh, we were lucky to get in contact with Jess Colo-Turatis at, at the office. If any school needs great advice around their English, you should get in contact with Jess because she is a genius. Uh, and she she suggested to us that when we, if we wanted to explicitly teach reading, our starting point should be vocabulary and, and helping kids understand words and what they mean and be able to use them effectively. Uh, and then obviously, if you understand vocabulary, you understand words, then you can read a passage with greater understanding. So that all made sense to us. So we were able to have Jess out a couple of times to to present some stuff to us. And now I know that Jess has a team of people. So now we had uh, a teammate of Jess's Sam come out to do our last PL about vocab. And it's just it's just kept the ball rolling with us and and the English focusing catalyst. So briefly, can you outline what the vocabulary lesson looks like? Oh, yes. I even put it down somewhere, Luke, on some notes so I wouldn't forget because I was having a look at it today. At the beginning of a vocabulary lesson, you would you'd share the word and explicitly convey the meaning of the word. Uh, the next slide might be examples and non-examples of the word. Uh, that's when we get the dual coding in there. So you would have pictures to the really back up the meaning of the word. Um, I'll use the example that Jordan O'Sullivan used last year because it's ingrained in my memory from um, from the HITP intensives. His one of his words was pugnacious, which is quick to anger, argue, or attack. Um, and then he would have examples of pugnacious. Uh, so once there was like a, a magpie attacking a person riding a bike. It's a picture. A, yeah, a picture of a magpie attacking a person on a bike. It says, this magpie is pugnacious because, 
and you know would be able to respond to that. And then it might have a little puppy lying on the ground asleep. This dog is not pugnacious because. So there's always examples and not examples in there. Um, next, it might look at uh, examples of how the word could be used in context in sentence writing. So there might be several examples to read with the class. So pugnacious dog barked at the mailman might be an example of something like that that they would use. Um, after we've gone through that, we will have um, a bit of a check for understanding. So one thing I like is the is, is not type of questions. So again, using Jordan's example, uh, it might be this this might have a picture of a, a bear or something. This bear is pugnacious or is not pugnacious because, uh, and the kids explain why that bear, you know, it might be chasing somebody. Yes, it is pugnacious because it's chasing a human. Uh, but it might have, again, the sleeping puppy. This puppy is or is not pugnacious because. So they have to kind of expand on their understanding of the meaning, which I thought was quite good. Um, and then it kind of goes into more sentence activities afterwards. So um, there, there'll be some type of visual stimulus for them to look at, and then they'll be able to do some writing. So the visual stimulus might have the, you know, topic as pugnacious, and, and then the kids might do some sentence writing about that. But then it's more structured where we look at, you know, whatever specific sentence structure we were looking at in class as well. I hope that makes sense. Absolutely. So and it ends on ends on the students with a very good sentence or example. You might even um, expect them at the year five and six level to to write them in a complex sentence. Yeah. And but again, that's scaffolded at the end of our uh, at the end of a vocab lesson anyway. So they will have exactly the type of sentence structure we would like to see, and that's normally colour coded so kids know exactly what type of thing they're meant to be writing, and they'll produce it. And of course, that's one piece of vocab. You might go through this process a few times uh, to unpack, you know, your more challenging vocabulary prior to a lesson. Vocab so closely linked to reading but it's also linked to writing. Your writing lessons, again, English is so multifaceted. Yes, So is. is your writing lessons changed now that you've started this journey? Yep. So one of the other resources we've tried to make good use of uh, is the Writing Revolution resource. I'm, I'm sure people have heard of it. We've managed to put all staff at the school through the Writing Revolution training. Uh, and now that we have these writing revolution resources, people can kind of pick those up and and drop them in for their writing lessons. And of course, when we're looking at writing, I mean, let's face it, writing's just not it's not as simple as picking up and just being able to do an EDI lesson because you have things like, you know, what are you what are you writing about? What's what's your focus? Is it your specific genre genre focus for English? Is it is it a scientific piece of writing? Uh, what's the purpose? So that's where we use those writing revolution resources. But we can kind of, we use them, but then we can put our own spin in areas of them to link them to our content more effectively. Are you still teaching genre? 
Yes, uh, absolutely. But I mean, let's face it, I teach year five, so it's a NAPLAN year. So I have to flip a coin at the start of the year and wonder about what NAPLAN writing focus will be. Will it be narratives or will it be a persuasive text? So we try to teach narratives and persuasive texts. Uh, you know, it's time of the year for rostrum. So kids are learning how to write speeches at the moment. So there is always going to be a specific genre focus for us. We just have to link it to either what we're studying in other subject areas or or to our writing revolution resources that we're using. And most of the time it works pretty well. How many writing lessons would you do per week? That is something we are still working through at school. Um, some teachers would say two and some teachers would say three. But when we look at the big picture, and and you have to remember we've only started English as a catalyst focus this year, but we were fortunate enough that we've had a head start in other areas. So um, we're looking at the breakdown of how, how our minutes in English should be broken down in a week. So does that mean specific vocab lessons? Does it mean specific reading lessons? We have to put in our spelling mastery on top of that. Are we explicitly teaching writing on top of that? So, and then are we explicitly teaching handwriting in addition to that? So there's, you're right, there are so many facets in English that have to be considered that we have to also manage the explicit lessons that we teach very well because otherwise you might be doing eight or nine explicit lessons in English per week. And that's a back-breaking workload for any teacher to have to do if they're putting together the resources for that. So at the moment, we would be looking at spelling mastery four days a week. So we've always get our spelling. We pretty much go through reading in some form every single day. Uh, Writing focus, we would try to fit in two explicit writing focuses uh, per week, which then allows us to hit the writing revolution stuff, can also relate it to the genre we're working on. Um, there's one other aspect I just forgot here. Oh, we also have to get in our daily reviews. So we need to get in those those daily reviews for English as well. well so. What would you include in that? Oh, the daily reviews for English have a bunch of stuff in them so um this is obviously from a year five perspective yes well we've also tried to across the school with english daily reviews we've tried to develop a structure again just to keep it consistent so people know what should go into an english daily review how it should look so that structure is always there so there's always going to be that familiarity so i could drop down a grade level into year four, I could pick up their slides and I'd still know that what I need there is there. So we look at things like uh, spelling. So it might be quickly touch on whatever your phonics focus might be. So there might be that in spelling. There'll be a few slides. So it might be a rocket read of some words and then it might be uh, a few words with, you know, your phonics sound missing. So then kids have to recall that type of phonics sound and say the word, that type of thing. Then they would go into more of a specific spelling focus. So it might be 
some of our vocab that we wanted them to know how to spell. It might be spelling mastery words that we think need to be covered. So some spelling mastery. So there's a specific spelling focus in there as well. Then there'll be a quick vocab focus where we touch the vocab that we've seen, where we quickly unpack the meaning, where we might write that into a sentence to show that we have that understanding. Then we'll have a quick grammar focus. And that grammar focus might be at, say, a paragraph level, or it might be at a, a sentence level, or you know, even a word level to identify what type of word it is. Then there'd be a quick punctuation slide that we would take mostly from the writing revolution. So that's a matter of being able to pick one of those slides out, drop it in. Then we like to specifically hit handwriting again as well, because handwriting is something that kids are struggling with these days. It hasn't been properly taught for years. So we have a specific handwriting practice in there as well, looking maybe at fluency joins or something like that. Then at the end, we come back and we do a quick genre, genre, why can't I say genre review? There you go. I got it out. Uh, where we might be looking at the, you know, the, you know, figurative language that we're using. So maybe we're using similes or maybe we're using metaphors or maybe some form of persuasive language. So there's a very specific structure to our English daily reviews as well. How long might that take? It sounds like it should take a long time. It does. Uh, 20 to 25 minutes okay. would be would be an optimal amount of time. Okay. And I have witnessed it this very week, a daily review being done that has been completed in 25 minutes. The kids work through it. The teacher knows the processes. They work through it with great pace. And, and like I said, with your protocols and everything in place, these things take care of themselves. There's so much that I'm hearing from you. Obviously, a lot of learning that's been happening over the last few years. What do you know now that you didn't know before? What do you do now that you didn't do before? Oh, okay. Let me shuffle some papers noisily. Um, I guess the biggest learning from this, what do you know now that you didn't know before? It has to come back to the science of learning. We, we knew that repeating practice works. Anybody who has ever wrote, learned their times tables knows that that rep repetition works. But I guess we didn't have the knowledge of why it works. As soon as we had the cognitive science to back us up, uh, that showed us how we build memories to show us how kids learn best. Uh, once we had that knowledge, then, then you have to be open to change. <laughs> that's, that's all there is to it. Um, so, I mean, I guess what I know now is, is I know how kids learn best. What I do differently now, because I know that is, is most of my classroom practice. I can, I can still maintain personality. I can still be engaging. I can still smile. I can, I don't have to stand out the front and deliver things in a drone. I can still be myself, but the practices I use are so much more effective. So what's the vision for your school, Pete? Oh, in the long run, <laughs> this is a big one. Our, our first one, we want to see, uh, as I guess all schools 
do, we want to see better NAPLAN results. So our vision is is a school that that performs above average in all areas, which then will prove to us that we are narrowing the knowledge gap that exists. Um, but apart from that, we our ultimate goal is to see a low variance curriculum across our school. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean everybody teaching everything at the same time, but we want it pretty close. So if you walk past year five and the, you know that maths is happening in, in Mr. Collins's room, then you know that maths will be happening in Miss Smith's room next to it. Uh, they mightn't be at the exact same place in that maths lesson, but certainly the content is the same and they'll be teaching the same content virtually the same time to kids. Uh, ultimately, we want that settled environment where everybody is on the same page. We've developed a fantastic set of resources that work for our kids and work in our context that we are delivering them with fidelity at the right time of the day. Pete, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you about what's happening in your classroom, what's happening in your school, um, and I'm sure the listeners um, really appreciate um, you sharing this with them. Thank you for your time, Luke. If uh, your listeners have any success in deciphering my thoughts, then I wish them luck and I hope they get something out of it. Thanks, Pete. Thanks for joining us on Teacher Insights. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favourite platform so you never miss an episode. If you're interested in learning more about Catalyst, check out the website catalyst.cg.catholic.edu.au. Until next time, keep learning.